0: Chapter six, 13, verse 16. And as you're doing that, I want you to think back to high school. If you can remember back that far. Some of you are saying, where did I attend high school again? Did you have a favorite subject? Some of you, maybe science was your favorite subject. For some of you, math was your thing. Others, like chop. Some of you enjoyed Recess. Some of you who are a little sicker than others may actually have enjoyed English. I didn't enjoy English at all. English was my worst subject. Ironically, it was English in which they placed me at an accelerated pace all through high school. I got the honor of sitting through Honors English all the way through high school. Now, why and how they chose me for Honors English will forever remain a mystery. It may very well be a testament to the failings of the public school system, I don't know if they pulled names out of a hat or if they threw darts at a wall with all of our pictures on it while blindfolded. I don't know how I got plugged for Honors English, but I was. I hated English. I had always hated English. It was my absolute worst subject. And I showed up for school and my little uh, itinerary, my list of classes, said I had English and had an H after it. And I approached one of the counselors or my teacher or somebody I said, what does the H mean? Well, that's Honors English. I said, what's Honors English? Well, it's kind of like an advanced English, accelerated English. It's beyond everybody else in your class. There's only one or two classes of honors English students, and you qualified for honors English. So it's a little bit more advanced. It's more difficult. Advanced? Why would I want advanced English? Well, it's an honor. You want to honor me? Keep me out of English altogether. Then I'll feel honored. But they didn't do that. I suffered through honors English. And English was difficult for me because it was not logical. It was not linear. There's no rules to it. They tell you there are rules to English, but there are no rules in English. There are only exceptions to rules in English. They tell you this is the rule, and that is only to lull you into a false sense of security and to make you think that you actually learned something. And the rest of the time after you memorize the rule is spent recognizing all of the exceptions to the rule. Now you and I both know that there comes a point when there are so many exceptions to a rule that the rule ceases to be a rule and it becomes an exception. That's what English is. English is a bunch of exceptions to rules that don't exist. So it's very difficult to learn anything in English and that's why I struggled with it. You and I might wish that all the rules in life were like that. No speeding unless it's on the second Thursday of the month and you're following a constant being chased by a vowel, then you can speed. And if they had a hundred more exceptions like that, then you and I would say there's no rule against speeding. I love history. History is linear. History is logical. History is a series of cause and effect relationships. This happened, which caused this, which created this, which did this, which caused that, and on it goes. And there are no exceptions to history. The North won the Civil War. No exceptions to that. You don't have to memorize the exceptions to that, unless you're from the South, and that, of course, is up for debate. But the North won the Civil War. George Washington was the first president of this country. There's no exceptions to that. It doesn't matter what else happens in history. You know that that is true, and it is without exception. And I have always loved history. I loved history so much when I was in school that in fifth grade, I memorized all of the presidents of the United States, all the way from George Washington through Ronald Reagan, who was president at the time. George Washington, John Adams, Thomas Jefferson, James Madison, James Monroe, John Quincy Adams, Andrew Jackson, that's as far as I know today, but in fifth grade I knew them all the way through to Ronald Reagan. And when I finished with that, I started to memorize all of the dates of their presidencies. And I got about halfway through the presidents, and then I got a life, and I stopped memorizing all of that altogether. That's how much I loved history. I still love history. I love watching the History Channel. I love watching war stories with Oliver North. Even today I read at least one church history text every year, two or three biographies, and one other book that's on just a one subject that is of historical interest. I love history, and I've always loved history. Now, when I became a believer in Jesus Christ, all of a sudden, history was far better than it ever was before. You know what made the difference? Now I know and have a relationship with the One who wrote history in eternity past. Now I know the One who is the author, the designer, the purposer of all that comes to pass. Now I have God's eye view on history, not just a bird's eye view of everything that's unfolded from Adam to the present, but I know that God wrote history in eternity past, He is the father of the lamb that was slain before the foundation of the world. And I know that God knows where it's going. He has told me what the result of it is, the goal of it is, and how all of it relates together. And I used to think that there was world history and then there was church history in the middle of this. And that somehow church history would once in a while intersect with world history. You know that's opposite. There is the history of the church. There is the history of redemption. And world history is the background against which God unfolds this history of redemption. Now I understand the author of history, the purposer, and the designer of it. And since I know him, now I understand that history is not just some random collection of accidents, not a randomless, random meaningless occurrence of chance details. Now I understand how everything is fitting together, how everything meshes together, and what the purpose of it all is. Because I know where it's going. I can see where it has been, and God has told us this is the purpose of all of it, from Adam to the consummation of time. Here's where it's going. Paul, I think, loved history. In Acts chapter 13, Paul does what nobody should ever do, and that's begin a sermon by talking about history. It's not the most interesting thing. It's not the most uh, engaging of subjects. Some of you hate history. Some of you detest history, some of you failed history, some of you still to this day don't like history, but yet the first few verses of Paul's sermon in the synagogue in Pisidian Antioch is a review of history. And so that's what we're going to be looking at this morning. This is the first of three long messages that Paul delivers that are evangelistic messages that he records for us. This one is delivered in the synagogue at Pisidian Antioch on Paul's first missionary journey. And we're going to take about four weeks to sort of go through the sermon. So let me sort of map out basically the overall gist of the whole sermon that Paul delivers and tell you how all of these parts relate to each other. Paul's sermon basically is comprised of three main points. He demonstrates to us that in Christ, history is culminated. History is culminated. That's verses 16 through verse 25. Then beginning in verse 26, the apostle demonstrates for us that in Christ, prophecy is fulfilled. Specifically two ways. His death is a fulfillment of prophecy, and his resurrection is a fulfillment of prophecy. And then third, in Christ, humanity is liberated. History is consummated, prophecy is fulfilled, and humanity is liberated. Those are basically Paul's three main points, and it all revolves around Christ. So today we're going to look at how Christ is the culmination of history, Next week we're going to look, and it's Palm Sunday next week, so next Sunday we're going to look at how the death of Christ is a fulfillment of prophecy, the week after that how Paul goes through and shows us that the resurrection of Christ is a fulfillment of prophecy, and then the following week we're going to look at how in Christ all of humanity is liberated. We are set free from all the things of which we could not be set free from, from the law of Moses. So we're going to look at verses 16 through 25 today, the fact that Christ is the culmination of all of history. Look what the apostle writes. Now, as we go through this, I want you to understand and see that there's one main theme that the apostle Paul is really hammering at in these verses. It is God's activity in history. See, this is why history for me became such a a wonderful thing even after my conversion. Let's look at how Paul emphasizes the activity and the work of God in history. Verse 16, Paul stood up. Now, this is this is Fresh on the heels of a 100-mile trip from Perga and Pamphylia up over those Taurus mountain ranges into Pisidian Antioch, probably still overcoming whatever bodily illness it was that drove him into that region in the first place. The Apostle Paul and Barnabas go into the synagogue, and if you were here last Sunday, you remember the leaders of the synagogue came to him and said, if you have a word of exhortation, share it with the people. Say it. Paul, would you like to preach? And he being the man to take every opportunity that was given to him and then to make some opportunities on his own, he said, sure. And so he stands up and he delivers this address and look what he emphasizes. Verse 16, men of Israel and you who fear God, listen, the God of this people, Israel, chose our fathers and made the people great during their stay in the land of Egypt. And with an uplifted arm, he led them out from it for a period of about 40 years he put up with them in the wilderness. And when he had destroyed seven nations in the land of Canaan, he distributed their land as an inheritance, all of which took about 450 years. After these things, he gave them judges until Samuel the prophet. Then they asked for a king, and God gave them Saul the son of Kish, a man of the tribe of Benjamin, for 40 years. After he had removed him, he raised up David to be their king, concerning whom he also testified and said, I have found David the son of Jesse, a man after my heart, who will do all of my will." From the descendants of this man according to promise, God has brought to Israel a Savior, Jesus. After John had proclaimed before His coming a baptism of repentance to all the people of Israel, and while John was completing his course, he kept saying, What do you suppose that I am? I'm not He, but behold, one is coming after me, the sandal of whose feet I am unworthy to untie. Did you notice the emphasis? Who's the Who's the subject of most of the verbs in that passage? It's God. God chose our fathers, God created a nation, God led them into Egypt, God delivered them from Egypt, God brought them up, God put up with them in the wilderness for 40 years, God ruled them through prophets until they wanted a king, then God gave them Saul, then God gave them David, then God said of David this, and now according to promise, God has fulfilled His promise to David, and God has brought us a Savior. And then God raised up John the Baptist to testify concerning Him. Who's the subject of all of human history? God. God. You see, friends, the history of the world is not the history of the world, and here's a few places where God fits in. The history of the world is the history of redemption. From Adam through the consummation of the ages. And world history really is the playing out and the unfolding of redemption history. Because Christ Himself is the culmination of all of history. And the One who works, the One who moves, the One who purposes, the One who designs, the One who directs all of it, is not men, not Moses, Not David, not Saul, not all of the people that are mentioned, but it is God behind all of that. Sovereignly directing and making sure that in His providence, all things work together for good to those who love God and are called according to His purpose. It's God who is the author of history. It is He who directs and purposes the whole thing. Now, Paul emphasizes God's activity in three things, and I want you to notice them. The first is God's preparation for a Savior. In the Garden of Eden, Adam plunged all of us into sin and depravity and a hopeless state of wreck and ruin from which we could not redeem ourselves. And even in the midst of that calamity in the Garden, God, in pronouncing judgment on Adam, said to the serpent, I'll raise up the seed of the woman and he will crush your head and you'll bruise his heel. It was a prophecy of the Messiah which was to come. And even in the midst of pronouncing judgment on the serpent upon Adam and upon Eve for their sin and for their rebellion... God, in the midst of that, showed His mercy and His grace in also promising to someday deal with the sin problem, and He began to act as far as the nation of Israel was concerned, specifically for them, in the person of Abraham, which is why Paul, in verse sixteen, at the or verse seventeen, says, "The God of this people Israel chose our fathers, and by fathers He means Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. The God of this is of this people Israel chose our fathers and made the people great during their stay in the land of Egypt." Now, Paul begins with them, which what is for them, the beginning of their history. Every Jew, if you could ask him, when did your history begin? They would say, Genesis chapter 15, when God called Abraham. That's when it all started for us. Or Genesis chapter 12, when God called Abraham. That's where it all started for us. God called Abraham and promised to him, I'll make of you a nation. And they could trace their lineage back to Abraham. Now, Paul also mentions something that every Jew would take for granted and every Jew would know and understand completely, and that is this, that it was God who chose Abraham, not the other way around. Abraham was not a God-seeker. Abraham was an idolater. It was God who chose Abraham and appeared to him and said, I'm going to make a covenant with you. Now, no Jew in his right mind would ever say, well, Abraham chose the Lord. Why is it that God chose Abraham out of all of the men on the face of the earth? you know what the answer to that question is? Sovereign grace. That's it. And of Abraham's two sons, Isaac and Ishmael, why did he choose Isaac and not Ishmael? you know what the answer to that question is? Sovereign grace. And of Isaac's two sons, Jacob and Esau, why did he say of Jacob, I've loved Jacob, but Esau I've hated? Was it anything in Jacob or Esau? Romans 9, Paul says, it was nothing in either one of them. The promise was made before either one of them were born, so that nobody could say, well, God saw this in Jacob, and so He chose Jacob over Esau. The promise was made before either of them were ever born. In fact, the decision was made before either of them were ever conceived, or before God ever called Abraham, that decision was made. And so what was God's choice based on? Why Abraham and then Isaac and not Ishmael, and then why Jacob and not Esau? You know what the answer to it is? Sovereign grace. You're not going to be able to figure that out. Was it because Jacob would have chosen God that God chose Jacob? No, he was a trickster. God guy was a liar. He was a deceiver. He was crooked. He was an ankle grabber. That's what, his, that's what his name means. Was it because Isaac would choose God that God chose Isaac? No. Was it because Abraham would have chosen God that God chose Abraham? You know why God made a covenant with Abraham? He chose to. He said, I'm going to do it. And so he did it. Not based upon anything in Abraham. Certainly not based upon anything in Isaac. And certainly not based upon anything in Jacob. No Jew would ever say, well, we would have chosen God. That's why God chose us. That's a ridiculous sentiment to a Jew. They understood that their whole history, their whole national history was one of rejection. They rejected God over and over and over and over they disobeyed Him. In fact, Moses reminded the people in Deuteronomy chapter 4... It's not because of anything in you that God chose you. He loved your fathers, and that's why He made a covenant with you. Deuteronomy chapter 7, it's not because you were greater or mightier than any of the other nations of the earth that God chose you. He set His love upon Abraham, and that's why you have the covenant. Reminded over and over again, it's nothing in us. It's nothing in us that God sees, that causes Him to set His love upon us. It's just sovereign grace. Election, God's election, whether it's of Abraham or Isaac or Jacob, is always a one-way street. It's not because of anything in us. Otherwise, you and I have something to boast about. We have something of which to say before the Lord, He chose me for this reason, as opposed to the other guy for that reason. I have something of which to boast. And it was God who chose Abraham. It was God who chose Isaac. It was God who chose Jacob and brought from them the nation, the patriarchs, the twelve heads of the twelve tribes of Israel. And He took them down into Egypt. And Paul continues his little... uh, course through human history or through Israel's history, for a period of 40 years He put up with them in the wilderness after He brought them up out of Egypt. God endured them in the wilderness. He put up with them. He tolerated them. He clothed them. He fed them. He made sure that they had water. And He guided them from place to place to place putting up with their sin, putting up with their rebellion and their wickedness for 40 years until He brought them into the land and God destroyed seven nations and brought them into the land of Canaan And having dispossessed those nations, he gave the land to that nation of Israel. And then Paul says all of this took about 450 years. We've covered 450 years of history in just a couple of verses. Now that's a bird's eye view. But remember what Paul's driving at? It's God who's working to prepare for a Savior. He called Abraham, brought them into Egypt, took them out of Egypt, brought them into the land. And there he ruled over them with prophets and judges until the time of Samuel the prophet. And then the people said, we don't want a king. Or we don't want God to be our king. We want a king. All of the other nations of the world have a king. And we want what they have. We want to be like them. What they really wanted was to be ruled by anybody but God. Another expression of their sin and their disobedience and their rejection of Him. And so God says, you want a king? I'll give you a king. And He gave them a king that they deserved, Saul. And Saul disobeyed the Lord. He ruled over them for 40 years until God removed Saul and God gave them David. And God said of David, here is a man of whom I can say, he is a man after my own heart. Now does that disturb you a little bit? That God could say of David, he's a man after my own heart. Here is a man who was married multiple times to multiple women. Here is a man who had committed adultery, committed murder to cover up adultery. His home life was in shambles. He never disciplined his kids He was driven off of his throne by one of his sons because he refused to deal with rape and incest within his own house. Here was a man who was guilty of or at least oversaw almost every form of wickedness that you and I can imagine. And God says of him, he's a man after my own heart. How could God say that? You know why God could say that? Because it's not the perfect individual who is an individual after God's own heart. It's the person who sees their sin for what it is and turns from it. That's the man or woman after God's own heart. David grew to be the type of man who his only desire was to do the will of God. Was he flawless? No. Was he perfect? No. Did he sin? Oh, you bet he sinned. But when confronted, he repented of his sin, he turned from it, and he walked in obedience to the Lord. That's a man or woman after God's own heart. We see how God prepared for a Savior. Second, I want you to notice what Paul tells us about what God did that he promised a Savior. Verse 23, from the descendants of this man, According to promise, God has brought to Israel a Savior, Jesus. Now this is the first time that Paul introduces Jesus. He's brought them from the call of Abraham all the way up to the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. And he's done that in just a few short sentences. He's taken them on a tour of all of their history and he's basically showing them everything has been pointing to this one event. Here is the promised seed. Now they were familiar with what promises he was talking about. 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 12, God promised to David, When your days are done and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up for you a descendant after you who will come forth from you and I will establish his kingdom. God promised David, one of your descendants will sit on your throne. I give my word to you about that. He wasn't talking about Solomon. Years after Solomon, Psalm 132, verse 11 The Lord has sworn to David a truth from which He will not turn back. Of the fruit of your body I will set upon your throne. Psalm 89, verse 34, My covenant I will not violate, nor will I alter the utterance of my lips. Once I have sworn by my holiness, I will not lie to David. His descendants shall endure forever. That was the promise that God gave to David. And all the Jews understood that. Their messianic expectation was high, and we could read hundreds of other verses that deal with the promises of the coming Messiah. And their expectations of the Messiah were at an all-time high then. They were waiting for the one who would deliver them from this bondage to Rome. They were waiting for their national deliverer. The one who would come and set up his kingdom and sit on David's throne in Jerusalem and rule with a rod of iron and bring all of God's enemies under his feet, including the Romans, and he would rule from Jerusalem, and Jerusalem would be the center of the earth, the center of all human government. Everybody would answer to their Messiah, and they were all waiting for that one. And do you remember when Jesus multiplied the bread and the fish, what the crowds did on one occasion? They rushed upon him, intending to make him king. Because they knew, hey, if this guy can multiply bread and fish, he can multiply weapons and soldiers just as easily. Let's make him our king, and we'll get out from underneath Rome and rule entirely. And Jesus said, the time for that, it's not now. They were waiting for their Messiah, but they weren't watching in the mangers. And so when he was born, he was born differently than they expected. He came differently than they expected, and they hated him. And they crucified Him. And that's for next Sunday. So God not only prepared for the Savior, God promised a Savior, and then it shouldn't surprise us if in the end God provides what He promises. Verse 25, or verse 24, after John had proclaimed before His coming, that is, before Christ's coming, a baptism of repentance to all the people of Israel. And while John was completing his course, he kept saying, what do you suppose that I am? I'm not He. But behold, one is coming after me, the sandals of whose feet I am unworthy to untie. So from Abraham to John the Baptist, do you notice all the people involved in the whole story? There's Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and the twelve patriarchs. Then there's Moses, and then there's Joshua, and then there's the settling in the land, and all the twelve tribes, and all of those people. Then there's the prophets, and the judges, and Samuel, and Saul, and David. And then according to David, the person of the Lord Jesus Christ, who was announced by John the Baptist. Notice all those people? hundreds of years of history, hundreds of people that he could have mentioned. And what I want you to notice is this. Although it's God who authors history and purposes history and designs history and directs history the way it is, he uses people to do it. It's not just that God did these things, but it's that God used men like David and Saul and Moses and Abraham to accomplish his purposes. God prepared for a Savior, he promised a Savior, and he provided a Savior. And He worked through all of human history to that goal and to that end so that as Paul says in Ephesians chapter 1, it was suitable to God that in the administration and fullness of the administration of the times, God will sum up all things in Christ. And He will present to Him the kingdom and He will present it to God the Father and God will be all in all, First Corinthians 15 says. So all of human history is moving toward, directed by, purpose to, and accomplishing the goal of being summed up in Christ. Because in Him, all of history has culminated. Now you say, that's all fascinating and interesting, but i got to get out of here today and go out to the store, and tomorrow morning I'm going to sit down across the office or across the work site from a pagan unbeliever who doesn't believe or know any of this. What does this have to do with me? Let me suggest to you just a couple of principles that you can use in your own witnessing and sharing Christ this coming week. The first is this. The message of our gospel is a historic message. Something you and I need to understand is that we're not believing just an ethereal faith without any founding in fact. The gospel that we present, the message that we share, the message of salvation is a historical message. It's rooted in history. God has worked in such and such a way. The call of Abraham is a historical fact. The founding of the nation of Israel is a historical fact. The giving of the law. The proclamation of the prophets. The announcement of John the Baptist. The birth of the Savior. The death of the Savior. The resurrection of the Savior. All of them happen in human history. And all of it is rooted in history. And so when we ask people to believe in Christ, we're not asking them to take a blind leap into a dark chasm. We're asking people to place their faith in a God who has a track record for 6,000 years of making promises and keeping promises and directing everything to saving us. The message that we proclaim is a historic one. Uh, Christ is not simply one piece in the historical puzzle. Christ is the picture of history. And all of the pieces come together to make him because he is the summing up of all of it. The person that you talk to tomorrow, they try and keep Christ out of history. And that can only land them in utter frustration and total despair. Because they don't understand the one for whom all of this was created and the one to whom all of this is being directed. It's Christ. And they want to keep Him out. And they don't want anything to do with Him. They don't want to acknowledge Him. And they want to try like Solomon to understand everything that is done and everything that happens From a human perspective, under the sun, without Christ involved in it, and it can only result in hopelessness and despair. The person that you talk to tomorrow who does not know Christ is in a state of total and utter despair, whether or not they know it. And it's frustration, and doom, and disappointment, and depression. Because they don't know the one for whom history was written. C.S. Lewis, who is noted for his profundity, said this, I believe in Christianity like I believe in the sun, that the sun has risen, not only because I see it, but because by it I see all things. I believe in Christianity like I believe the sun has risen, not only because I see it, but also because by it I see everything else. That's profound. That's the perspective that you have to give to history. I was watching a news program here, I think it was about a week and a half ago. It was one of those debate programs which I like so much, and they had this guy on who was feeding friend, uh, a feeding frenzy on the one guy who was in the middle. And he's leading a group of agnostics and atheists in trying to get B.C. changed from B.C. to B.C.E., from before Christ to before common era. And this would be the common era. This would be C.E. And everything um, before C.E. would be B.C.E., before the common era. And they just want to get Christ taken out of it. You know how silly and stupid and fruitless that is, isn't it? I sat there and watched that whole thing and I thought to myself, am I the only one who understands this? Because nobody brought this up on the program. Am I the only one that understands that even if you change B.C. to B.C.E., that His birth is still the thing that initiated the common era? So does it matter what you call it, whether you call it B.C. or B.C.E., Christ is still the fulcrum of history. He's still the hinge on which everything turns. We still would date the the common era and before the common era with the one individual for whom all of history is written. So it doesn't matter what you call it. But he's in a total state of despair because he wants Christ out of history, out of our dating, and out of everything else. doesn't matter what you call it. He is history. The culmination of all of it. He's the purpose for it. The designer of it. The message that we preach is a message that is historic. Second, the gospel message that you and I proclaim is a message that is theocentric. And by that mean, by that I mean that that is to say God is at the center of all of it. Our message is not a man-centered gospel. It's a God-centered gospel. That's why Paul begins by stressing the sovereignty and the providence and the power and the design of God in all of human history. So that when we proclaim the gospel, we have to understand that it's not about us And it's not about the person that we're sharing with. It's about what God has done. And you and I tend to warp the gospel message in sharing it with people. We tell them, God loves you and He'll be sad for all of eternity if you don't join Him in heaven. And if heaven's an empty place without you there, God will just not be fulfilled for all of history. And God wants to give you love and joy and peace and happiness and long and prosperous and healthy life. If you'll just come to Jesus today and believe in Him in your heart, He'll make you happy forever. Won't you do that now? Is that the Gospel? you know what the Gospel is? God is holy and glorious, and you and I have sinned against that glory. And God, from eternity past to eternity future and through all of human history, is unfolding and displaying His eternal glory in the salvation of sinners. It's not about you, and it's not about your happiness, and it's not about me. Salvation is about God and His glory. That is why Paul says, it's God who chose us, God who adopted us, God who predestined us, God who redeemed us, God who called us, and God who sealed it. And three times in Ephesians 1 he says it is all to the praise of His glorious grace. So that it's not about you and I and what we can do for God, but it's about what God has done for us in Christ and how He has worked in history to save those who will turn from their sin and believe on Him for eternal life. That is the Gospel. It is the gospel of God's glorious grace. And it is all to the praise of His glory. Our gospel is historic. Our gospel is theocentric. It's not about man. It's about God and His glory, God and His purposes, God and His Son, and what God has done for us in His Son in order that we might be acceptable to Him. Not what we can do. God is not some cosmic bellhop that must come running every time we call His name. And you and I would do well to have the attitude of John the Baptist who said, I'm not worthy to loosen a strap on a sandal of his foot. And he must increase and we must decrease. That is a historic, theocentric, God-honoring, Christ-glorifying view of all of human history and the salvation that you and I have been blessed with. Our Father, we do thank you that history is culminating in Christ and that you have blessed us with being a part of it. And I pray that you would forever mark upon our minds and our hearts an understanding of what you are doing and why you are doing it and that it is all summing up in Christ. We may not understand the details of it. We may not understand all of the whys behind it, but you have revealed enough for us to give you praise and to give you glory and to honor you as our history-directing, uncaused cause behind all that happens. And we look to you as our God, our Savior, and our Lord, who works all things together for good. Thank you that you have purposed that, and thank you that you have done that. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to the latest podcast from Kootenai Church. If you'd like to learn more about Kootenai Church or to donate to our church ministry, you can do so online by visiting KootenyChurch.org.